Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast series focusing on issues related to religion and politics. In this episode, YDS alum Emily Judd interviews YDS professor of New Testament criticism and interpretation Laura Nasrallah, whose most recent book is titled Archaeology and the Letters of Paul. Professor Nasrallah discusses the lesser-known authors of the New Testament, the co-authors of Paul's letters. So compared to you or me who might sit down alone in a study and type out a letter to someone, shoot out an email from our own fingertips, um, the letters of Paul are much more of a communal experience. She weighs in on why Paul may have included teachings about women's role in church. That's where I think that we can see that women were in roles of religious leadership. And Professor Nasrallah reflects on the long history of Christian analysis of the content of Paul's letters. That question of wrestling with Paul's letters started pretty much as soon as they were sent. Um, And the fact that Christians today still engage in those debates is so vital, so exciting, so worthwhile. Thank you so much, Professor Nasrallah, for joining us today. The letters of Paul are the earliest Christian documents we have. Why is it important for Christians to understand and study Paul's letters? Thank you, Emily, for inviting me, and thank you for that question. So, you're right. The letters of Paul are the earliest documents that we call Christian. So that's the first thing that I want to mention is that these letters are this wonderful trove of historical documents that tell us a lot about multiple kinds of religion, social life, and politics in the first century. They've come to be contained within the New Testament or the Christian Testament, but originally at the time that they were written in the middle of the first century CE or so, These are documents from a Jewish man who understands himself to be in Christ to communities, mainly in cities around the Eastern Mediterranean basin, that want to affiliate with a form of Judaism that involves this anointed one or this Christ figure, most likely. Um, So it's important for us to study them as historians because they're wonderful documents of those of lower status. Usually when we have documents from the ancient world, they come through elite Uh, systems of transmission to us. And we might get Cicero or we might get Tacitus. In this case, we also have traditions of elite transmission of Christian texts, but we have um, a series of letters which were never meant to be read by everyone in the world. Um, A series of letters which contain information about very um, mundane issues, what you eat, how you spend your money, Um, how you receive spirit or don't receive spirit that are contained uh, in in these historical materials. So for historians, it's really exciting. Um, For Christians, of course, this is part of a series of texts that are understood to be scripture. So it becomes extremely important to look at these letters, which are often seen because they are the earliest as the kind of purest or most authentic or most urgent transmission of um, of Christian identity, it's important to understand them um, and the way in which we currently relate to these very ancient historical documents that were written to different people in a different world with different ethical concerns. Now, who was Paul? Paul gives us snippets of himself in his letters. And I think at one point he mentions he used to be part of a Jewish religious group called the Pharisees. But what do we know for sure about the life and death of Paul. 
I love this question because it's such a complicated one again. So we know very little about Paul from his own letters. Um, there's a wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians where he says sort of, you know, to the Jews, I'm a Jew. To those inside the law, I'm inside. To those outside, I'm outside. He presents himself as a real shape shifter. He presents himself as brother to the communities to which he writes, sometimes as father, sometimes as a sort of nurse or mothering figure as well. Um, the historical data we have about Paul himself is really, really light. Often we think we know a lot about Paul because people may have read the Acts of the Apostles, which contains its own story, its own crafted narrative about who this um, important apostle or important figure was. From Paul's own letters, we can reconstruct very, very little. Certainly, obviously, nothing about his death. Um, from the Acts of the Apostles, even, we can reconstruct nothing about his death. It, the Acts of the Apostles ends with this sort of strange hanging moment where Paul is in what seems to be a you know, fairly, um, fairly social house arrest in Rome itself. Later tradition certainly talks about a martyrdom of Paul at Rome. And later tradition also contains many figures who want to speak in Paul's voice. In his letters, Paul praises quite a few women active in the early Christian communities, including women named Chloe, Prisca, and Phoebe. However, in his letters, there are also some problematic passages for women, including the statement that women should be silent in churches. What then can we conclude from the letters? Was Paul for or against women's involvement in church? This is one of the, the key questions that, that troubles us in the study of Paul's letters, particularly for Christians who want to think about using Paul's letters as normative. When you asked your first question about why is it important for Christians to study and to understand Paul's letters, um, I think that one of the things that we want to think about are the way that those letters are deployed today to limit women's religious leadership within Christianity, to limit the lives of LGBTQIA plus folk within Christian community, both to um, offer solutions for and to create divisions um, in our racial dialogues, in our conversations about racism, um, in our conversations about economic responsibility, in our conversations about spirit-filled forms of Christianity, charismatic Christianity. So the letters of Paul have this kind of urgency today and an urgency in particular maybe around, around women and women's religious leadership. So one of the things that I argue um, in my book, Archaeology and the Letters of Paul, is that perhaps we should be less concerned about what Paul thought about a variety of things, um, whether about um, the possibilities that enslaved persons could worship in Christ's communities in antiquity or about the questions of women's leadership. Maybe what's more interesting is to try to do the work of historically reconstructing the kind of debates that were going on on the ground in communities themselves in the first century. That's where I think that we can see that women were in roles of religious leadership. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, that women who are praying or prophesying should do so with their heads veiled. By the time we get to 1 Corinthians 14, there's an argument being launched about women being silent in, in the ecclesia, in the assembly or, or the church. 
I think what we see there is that there were women in Corinth who were in roles of religious leadership and that Paul himself, Paul and his co-author Sosthenes in, in, the, in, in the case of First Corinthians, may have been uncomfortable with that form of leadership and with the ways in which that may have challenged the, um, the messages that Paul was trying to offer to the community and also the messages that other Jewish missionaries were offering to that community likely as they moved through this important, um, important uh, market center. I want to highlight one woman in particular, and I want to do so by mentioning two really great scholars in New Testament. Um, the name of the ancient woman is Junia. In Romans 16, there's a long list where Paul's basically saying hello and greetings to, to an enormous set of people, many of whom are, are women. And he names in particular Junia as remarkable among the apostles. And it's really the work of Bernadette Bruton, and more recently, the work of my colleague at Yale, Jan Jan Lin, who have talked about the ways in which it's incontrovertible that this figure, Junia, was a woman who was considered remarkable among the apostles. So we have a, a long tradition of trying to make that feminine name into a masculine name, um, which is really not supported by manuscript evidence or um, really by this broader understanding of the roles of women's authority in the first century, um, not only in in Christ communities, but also um, as heads of synagogue, we have evidence, and certainly as priestesses and key political figures even in the Roman world. You mentioned something I would just like to touch on briefly. Paul takes all the credit in terms of we give Paul all the credit for writing these letters. But you just mentioned that there are co-authors. So I'm curious, how were the Pauline letters composed and disseminated? Can you talk a bit about the co-authors and were scribes writing these or were the letters written by Paul himself? This is such a great question. You've hit on a key area of research right now. So we do not have any autographs of Paul's letters. So that's the technical term for something that's actually written by his hand. We only have those letters in forms that date from the third century and on that were copied out by scribes. So we have to look within the letters themselves to get clues as to the social setting of their writing. And then we also look to what we know about processes of writing um, in the Roman world at the same time, right? To try to reconstruct what was going on. So you're right, we give Paul all the credit. He becomes the saint and certainly his voice comes out very strongly within the letter. So even if you have a, an introduction to a letter that talks about Paul and Sosthenes or Paul and Silvanus or Paul and Timothy who are writing, Usually within that letter, we devolve at some point to the first person to, I think this, or I say that. Um, and that's why Paul looms so large. What do we know about procedures of writing in antiquity? I want to take us um, to the end of Romans, the letter to the Romans, to find one important cue. Um, and that is a place where it says, um, I, Tertius, am writing this letter. It's this moment where we have the name of, of someone who has a Roman name, right, a Latin name, a single person sort of pops out of the text as a, as a writer. Um, and I think many of us are wondering, given what we know about the nature of writing in antiquity, whether or not some of the letters of Paul were dictated to enslaved persons. So we know that this is a common phenomenon in antiquity where a household, someone within a household who wants to write something will dictate it to a learned, educated, enslaved person within the household. 
Whether or not Tertius is enslaved, we will never know um, for sure. But we can wonder about the act of writing in antiquity as a very plural act. We know that that was the case. So compared to you or me, who might sit down alone in a study and type out a letter to someone, shoot out an email from our own fingertips, um, the letters of Paul are much more of a communal experience at both levels, at the level of writing and also at the level of reception. These are not sent to one person, to one mailbox, to one address. We need to picture the ways in which the letters are read out loud to people in assembly. And as they're being out loud, read out loud, it's very likely that whoever delivered the letter, someone sent from Paul and one of his co-writers, might have been questioned about, well, what was meant by this? Or do you want to expand on that? That this is a very dialogical process. Um, and it's very likely that some of the content of these letters was immediately debated uh, within the ecclesia, the assembly, the church, the community that received them. Now you talk about the Christian assemblies. Paul wrote his letters during a 15-year period to specific Christian communities around the world. How are we to distinguish when Paul's reasoning and arguments are specific to one historical Christian community or when his explanations apply universally to all Christians then and now? Yeah, thank you for that question. And I'm going to um I'm I'm going to sort of re reframe it in a way. So the letters of Paul are occasional letters. They are letters that are aimed at very particular issues, what Paul considered to be issues. We don't know if the communities considered them to be issues um, in a variety of cities or places around the Roman Empire. Letters by a Jewish man to communities probably mostly Gentile, that is non-Jewish communities, that are interested in affiliating with Jewishness, Paul is trying to convince them that his understanding of Jewish ethics, of Jewish identity, that is linked to this Christ figure is the way to go, is really, really important. Um, as you said so rightly, these are not universal letters. They're understood later to be letters that are meant to be written to all people. But in their first instantiation, they're written to people at Corinth. They're written to people at Thessaloniki. They're written to people in the province of Galatia. Um, or they're written to Christ followers in the city of Rome, right? The, the sort of central location of the Roman Empire. How do we decide what is particular and what might be universal? That is the absolute question of New Testament studies and of uh, subsequent conversations around theology and, and ethics. I would say that the decision for that lies within each individual in community and within the process of an ethics of interpretation. So with that phrase, an ethics of interpretation, I'm kind of picking up from feminist interpretation, feminist hermeneutics around biblical studies, particularly the work of Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza. And what I mean by saying the ethics of interpretation is I think often what people want to do is to say, well, the Bible says X, or the Bible says Y. And instead, we need to take a step backwards and say, I take responsibility for my claim that the letters of Paul tell me to do X, Y, Z, that the letters of Paul tell me that there is no Jew or Greek, that the letters of Paul tell me that women should not be in leadership, that the letters of Paul tell me um, 
that prosperity will fall on those who follow God, that each person who is doing that form of interpretation needs to recognize, needs to um, admit that he or she, that they are making that ethical claim, making that historical leap, really, to say that this is a, a universal message. Do I say that so that people don't make universal claims? No. I say that so that each of us knows that we need to think about the claims that we're making and not hide behind a kind of facade that it's a very simple procedure to say that the letters of Paul claim this universally or that the Bible says that universally. That's all to say that that question of wrestling with Paul's letters started pretty much as soon as they were sent. Um, And the fact that Christians today still engage in those debates is so vital, so exciting, so worthwhile. What I also want to emphasize is that people should understand that they are taking part in a long set of historical practices of engaging with these texts and should take responsibility for knowing the ethical outcomes for the kind of interpretation that they offer. I'm curious, how did you first become interested in studying Paul's letters and the New Testament? I come from a Protestant Christian community. And for Protestants, the letters of Paul, given Martin Luther's strong attachment in particular to the letter to the Romans, which he called a gospel, right? He understood it to be good news. Um, The letters of Paul are so key. So I, I don't think it's an accident that I was attracted to to the letters of Paul. Um, I also come from um, a Lebanese Protestant community and from a childhood briefly spent in Lebanon as the civil war started there. So I think very early on, I was aware that religious difference could cause tension, could cause violence, could cause warfare. Um, The letters of Paul to me are a perfect one of many, but for me, a particularly perfect site from which to try to do the work of reconstructing tensions, arguments, debates, hopeful practices, great imaginative ways of thinking about how to be in the world under the Roman Empire. Um, They are a key scripture, in particular for Protestant Christianity, but also for other forms of Christianity. And as I came to know these letters better, um, to listen to colleagues, particularly colleagues who come from the context of the study of Judaism in antiquity, I came to see that these letters are so much richer than just sort of scriptural documents for Christians. They are a wonderful mechanism for reconstructing how complicated antiquity is and what it means to get a glimpse of a first century Jewish writer. Um, So that's part of my path to these letters. Thank you so much. And thank you again for joining us today. I think this conversation was really enlightening, not only about Paul's letters and the early Christian community to whom he was writing, but also how we can approach sacred ancient texts and just the different ways in how to think about how letters were composed So thank you so much for sharing all of your insight. Thank you for this time. I'm really grateful.